As the new year quickly approaches, there are many in the Chicagoland area that were not filled with holiday cheer and most certainly were not looking to turn the page to a new year. No, instead, they were either learning that their precious child had been killed by some lunatic who dressed like a clown, or they were waiting to find out if their missing child was a victim of the murderous clown. And being a parent in either of these positions leaves these absolutely devastated human beings trying to somehow figure out how to cope with the soul-crushing reality that they have lost their child in the worst way imaginable. Now, I've touched upon this concept previously, which is how exactly does one go about trying to live a life that now has a massive, gaping hole that can never be filled? The second guessing must never end. Could I have done something differently? Did I fail my child by allowing them to be in a position where the thief of lives could snatch them up? Was I not paying enough attention to the details of my child's life? How do I get out of bed in the morning? How do I pretend to care about the meaningless job that I'm expected to go to on a daily basis? Will I feel better when justice is served and the man responsible for my child's death is punished? And I don't know the answers. And I don't believe that anyone does. Because quite simply, there are no answers. I suppose the best one can hope for is to try and take it day by day and hope that the gut-wrenching pain subsides over time. But it's a wound that will never heal, a living hell that you will have to deal with every morning when you wake from sleep, hoping that it was all just a nightmare, but knowing that it wasn't, and feeling deep in your heart that there is no end to this pain, ever. So yeah, January 1st of 1979 rang in hollow for many, as they, like the rest of the world, would have to wait and see what the fate of John Wayne Gacy would be. Here's hoping that these other boys get identified someday because you might actually see something more definitive and you'll see more um, information about when they disappeared. Um, because right now we just have loose um, ranges of dates and in some cases we don't even really know there's um, a, a body that's just kind of on its own that was buried in the crawl space God knows when it could have been buried there could have been as early as 1973 could have been as late as 1978 so the pattern may emerge later w the one thing that I have seen is that 1976 was a pretty active year especially the summer it almost is like starting in May he's just killing so often and in some cases doubles um, as he referred to them in a very ominous way. Um, I do believe Randy Raffet and Samuel Stapleton were killed in the same evening. Um, I have a suspicion that there may be some others that were killed on the same evening. Um, James Hawkinson, who was the last victim to be identified a couple years ago, went missing very close to Rick Johnston. And, you know, I, I will never know, but I've some sometimes wondered, were they at the same concert at the Aragon Ballroom? Did they go missing together? And then, of course, you have Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. If Michael Marino is actually there, I, I don't know. Um, but also, I, you know, I do kind of touch upon it in the book is, is Billy Carroll. You know, you he heard those stories about him. Uh, you know, he was, he was a male sex worker for sure at that time. And he was... Um, 
you know, essentially brokering the deals between some of the the older men and some of the young young boys. Um, or he was a what they refer to on the streets as a quote sugar hawk. Um, him being a seasoned streetwise kid, I have to imagine that he did not choose to go to Gacy's home on his own. It just doesn't make any sense to me that a kid like that would go to Gacy's home on his own. He, you know, he did do that. He had some regular um, men that would come around and he did go home to them on, on some occasions. But I, I just don't see him going all the way out to the airport, um, near the airport, Summerdale Avenue, and, and going into this house on his own. Um, so I, I wonder if one of those boys, because he's kind of buried in a, a cluster of other victims, several unidentified victims, I wonder if he knew one of them. Um, because given so many of these kids were from Uptown, I have to think that one of these unidentified victims is for sure an Uptown kid. I, I just, I'm, I guarantee that there's at least one or two more that we're going to find out someday that, that, oh, he lived, he lived in Uptown. He, you know, he came from Uptown. I think, I think that's going to happen. Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 20. I wrote them all. We left off on the 26th with the dig at Gacy's home continuing after a two-day break for Christmas, with body after body being unearthed. As the count continues to grow, the Displains police are still desperately searching for another link between Gacy and Rob Peast. As Kozenzak has his officers rummaging through drop boxes full of donated clothes, searching for anything in order to have the backup plan in place, just in case something goes horribly wrong with the planted evidence. Little does Kozenzak know that any additional evidence found would not cure the underlying problem that the search on the 21st was illegal and that all evidence would be suppressed if the planted receipt is discovered and attacked by the defense. Speaking of which, my father is busy drafting several motions that will be presented to the court on Gacy's first official court date, which is to occur on December 29th. We aren't quite there yet, but we're close. Let's see what goes on during the days leading up to the creep's first day in court. The recovery mission at 8213 Summerdale has resumed with two teams of three Cook County Sheriff's Police continuing to excavate the creep's crawl. The first remains recovered on this day had actually been reported as recovered on the 26th as body number eight, as the unusual position of body number seven was misconstrued as a second body, when in fact, it was the remains of a single victim. The morgue, because of the confusion, had prematurely issued a second body number to a single victim which was now reassigned to the victim discovered at 10.05 a.m. This is a perfect example of what these men were up against in terms of trying their very best to piece together all of the skeletal remains of each and every victim, so as to make the hopeful eventual identification of these victims as accurate as possible. 
Bodies that still had bones contained within various articles of clothing made this task much easier for the team to keep the remains of a particular body as one complete skeletal remain. But this was in no way, shape, or form a perfect system. And this fact, in the years to come, long after Gacy was executed, would result in at least one misidentification of a victim, which will be covered in part two of the Gacy tapes. But that is for later. Right now, though, the body count of victims has officially entered double digits. Body number eight was recovered clothed in dark pants with bright blue Adidas jogging shoes. A ligature was recovered from around the neck of the victim. Victim number 11 was recovered adjacent to body number eight. A mere 10 minutes later, this victim was found wearing corduroy pants, a gold-colored knit shirt, and a large Western-style belt buckle. This unique buckle was collected by members of the North Investigation Unit as a possible means of identification. Five minutes later, victim 12 was recovered with black cloth material pants laid over the body and another ligature was found around the neck. At 1 p.m., body number 13 was recovered, unclothed, no ligature found. Which, if you're wondering, the ligatures are evidence that the victim had been killed by the rope trick. At 1.55 p.m., body number 14 is discovered. Close inspection of this particular body revealed that the remains had been placed in a plastic bag and was clothed in dark corduroy pants, high-top athletic shoes, and red socks. Keep in mind, as Genty has explained, that the order in which the remains are being recovered are not the order in which the victims were killed by the creep. The dates of each victim's death would not start being figured out until the identification process was underway. And this was not an exact science either. Body 15 was recovered five minutes later. Again, the remains were contained in a large, clear plastic bag, and the body was unclothed. That concluded the gruesome work for the day, as the men were sent home to take long, hot showers, which would clean the dirt off of them, but couldn't wash away the horrors of the day. Not by a long shot. At 10 p.m., two evidence techs were dispatched to the sheriff's police facility to photograph all of the various jewelry which had been recovered from Gacy's home during the searches of the 13th and the 21st, as well as during the excavation of the crawl. This was done explicitly as an attempt to match any of the pieces with the boys that had gone missing over the last six years. Once again, this was certainly not a foolproof way to identify victims but it was one of the few means that the ETs had at their disposal to try to figure out who was who. The medical examiners would use the dental and medical records to attempt to find matches, and the ETs would use everything else. The requirement of the victims having been reported missing either at the time of their disappearance or post-arrest with a call to the tip line was an absolute necessity for either of the teams to have any chance of identifying the victims because without family members supplying medical and dental records or being able to identify a particular piece of jewelry as their sons, identification of any of the victims would have been rendered impossible because of the state of scientific advancement in 1978. What a grueling task that must have been. Meanwhile, back at the Displains Police Department on the 28th, Kozenzak is making the necessary arrangements for a dig to take place at the Mary Hill Cemetery as he continues to follow his hunches in his obsessive search for Rob Peace's body. Recall that they had found a handwritten map and a pre-printed map of the grounds of the cemetery at the Creep's house. 
which is what put Kozenzak on the Mary Hill Cemetery concept to begin with. After Gacy was arrested, Kozenzak received a tip that one of Gacy's victims had just been buried in a pauper's grave at Mary Hill Cemetery. Turns out, this was Dale Landigan, whose body had been recovered from the Desplaines River back on November 12th in Shanahan, Illinois, which is 53 miles south of Desplaines. So yes, his body was discovered before Gacy was arrested, or before he was on the radar of a police force, which actually cared. Landigan was identified by some of his belongings that were found during the searches of Gacy's home. You may recall in episode 17, during Gacy's third statement to Albrecht, towards the end of that conversation, that Albrecht had left the room and came back with a photograph of Landigan and had asked Gacy if he recognized him. And that Gacy said that he may recognize him from a bar in Franklin Park. But when they asked him directly if he was one of his victims, Gacy said no. So now we know how they came up with that picture. But damn, I find it so strange that Gacy's claiming that he wasn't one of his victims when Landigan went missing on November 4th of 1978, a mere month and some change before Gacy is arrested. Gacy can remember him from some random bar, but can't recall whether or not he killed him. I mean, the creep has been giving it up. So why choose to lie about this particular kid? It makes zero sense to me. And I realize that none of what Gacy did makes sense, but I'm specifically talking about this victim and why he's not copping to it. After all, James Mazzara, who went missing on November 23rd of 78, and who was also fished out of the river on December 28th, after Gacy had already made statements where he admitted to killing Mazzara before his body had been discovered. I said it in episode 17, and I'm gonna say it again now. Something is just not adding up. And in light of the story that we heard at the beginning of episode 19, that story might in fact hold the answer for which we seek. And that is that the creep might not have been working alone. She didn't do any digging that day. No. To the best of my knowledge, Bob, I, I don't recall, I don't recall digging more than five holes And I think the ones that I dug were, were individual, individual holes. You know? No, no, no long, large ones. You know? But what I mean is like trenches. I know Rossi dug two, two or three trenches. I know Cram dug two or three trenches. Trenches meaning where you could probably put two, three, or four bodies in. They know what they were digging for. <coughs> they know that. It was for I don't know bury people. I don't know. Rossi it was never. It was never. You know, here. You know, when you ask, was any of that stuff discussed? It, it was just like with with the sex thing. When we got into the sex thing, we didn't discuss the sex thing. You know, all all, all I had to do, like in the morning when I when I when he came in, Michael Rossi coming to wake me up, all I had to do was throw my coverage back. I didn't have to say get on it or do anything to it. He would just automatically go ahead and do it. There were, there were so many things that were just taken for granted or automatically done that were, were not, you know, like Ross, you know, a after this, this episode where I, I had been found and, and I had told him, I said, well, you know, you guys both know we will all get into it. And he said, yeah, we have all known it for some time. Nothing then, then I, Well, they never said anything to each other, but they both knew the other one was doing it. 
But then, then uh, they, of course, they never admitted to it, whether they got into it with each other. Because there was that time, you know, when I come home and there was, you know, when I come in from out of town and I know they were both there and I knew there was parties in the house. And I wondered if it was parties with broad or just parties between the two of them there. There have been occasions when I would come home and find two or three other people there that I didn't even know. So Kozenzak, after he inspects the fresh grave of Landigan, notices that there's a dirt mound, which is used by the cemetery to store extra dirt for burials, which has the following dimensions, 50 feet wide by 30 feet in length, and which stands 30 feet high. That's quite a dirt mound. So after this visit to the cemetery and a conversation is had with the sexton, Kozenzak calls the Niles Police Department, and he talks to a Captain Edward Dennis, and he asks him if he can make the arrangements for a dig at the dirt mound, because he believes it may be one of Gacy's burial sites. Captain Dennis makes the calls and gets approval from the Archdiocese of Chicago. The dig is set to commence at the cemetery on December 29th. Meanwhile, back in my father's law office, he's feverishly preparing his variety of motions that will be filed with the clerk on the following day. As you know, I enjoy highlighting the differences between then and now in this podcast. And for lawyers back in 78, personal computers were not a thing, which means that word processing programs weren't a thing either. So yeah, everything was prepared on a typewriter, and that was not done by my father. Not then, and frankly, not ever. Every motion I ever saw him write was handwritten on a yellow legal pad and then turned over to his secretary to type it out. Now, the reason that I bring these types of things up is to illuminate the fact that everything was harder to accomplish back then. And as a result, everything happened at a much slower pace. So when I say he was working feverishly, I mean it. The practice of law back then was an entirely different beast. One thing is for certain though, at 9 a.m. on the following day, he would have all of the motions done, ready to be filed. If it's starting to seem like my father drafted all the motions in the Gacy case, well, that's because he did. Well, the first thing I did was file motions for discovery. Sam and I, comprehensive motion. It included everything. That should be on file, but lost somewhere in my file, in my brain, but it's on the record somewhere. And when I got uh, actual paperwork, this paperwork is uh, complicated. And I don't, uh, I argued uh, there were two, several motions, one to suppress statements and one, maybe a couple to suppress statements and a couple to suppress the uh, evidence for the search warrants. I wrote them all. Now, back at the Displains Police Department, at around 12.30 p.m., a 13-year-old young woman named P.J. Miller walks into the station and informs the cop at the desk that she has some information about Gacy that she needs to tell one of the detectives. So she's set up with one of the detectives in a room where she proceeds to take about a half an hour to write out a statement. Now, in her statement, she indicates that right before Christmas, she and a group of her friends had met to go to the Christmas concert at Iroquois Junior High in Displains. And at around 6.35, the group met and they made their way to the school. 
where they proceeded to wander around in the school until the vice principal told them to leave because they weren't watching the concert. So they did leave, and then they went to the 7-Eleven, where they picked up a couple more kids and then proceeded to the house of one of the boys in the group. They hung out there for a while, and then they had something to eat before the whole crew left to head back towards the school. But on the way, they stopped at the Nissan Pharmacy, where she claims they ran into Robert Peast and a couple of other boys who joined the group and then they all went back to the school to try to catch the end of the concert. By the time they arrived, the concert had already ended. She looked up at a clock and noted it was 9 p.m. End of statement. Now, this is a strange statement for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it appears that it took place days after Rob was reported missing. And secondly, is that Detective Adams, who was in the room with her while she was writing the statement, did not ask her to indicate precisely what day this occurred. At this point, we're all assuming that somehow she misidentified the boy that she didn't just see for a fleeting moment, but instead who had joined the group and had walked back to the school with her. She seems to have known Rob, so it seems unlikely that she would have confused someone else for him. But we know Rob is dead, right? Because Gacy has admitted it in detail on a couple of occasions, so it seems clear that this must be a case of mistaken identity. But with Gacy now in custody, specifically for the murder of Robert Peast, and Peast's body has not been found, and there's really no actual link placing Peast at Gacy's home, other than the planted receipt, this little statement which is the only one of its kind to make its way into the investigation file that explains police, must have made Kozenzak a bit nervous because they didn't know then what we know now. So, what if? With, with Graham, I could come back into town and I could tell that there was something up, you know, because I would know there was a party that had transpired or something, you know. Because I'd say, who was in the house here with you? He'd say, nobody. Well, I knew what brand of cigarettes he was. I'd say, well, who the hell smoking these non-filtered cigarettes then? And you'd, you'd catch him. In, I, I, I always catch Cram in line. Did you ever notice any new property in your house after returning home? Like, for example, anybody's ring, wall. Ja jackets and sweaters and stuff like that, yeah. You know. Oh, that's something that we... we they stopped over the other night and they left a sweater here or they left a jacket here. But they never came back and picked it up. Nope. I said, why don't you take it though? No, he said, they'll come back for it. I think the one time I found a uh, sweater in the living room and then I once found a jacket in the laundry room. So who the hell is this laundry? And it was somebody that Graham had known. During 1970, before I ask you that, do you ever remember any other occasion when you woke up um, one morning and there was a body in the house and Rossi was there, other than Well, you know, here again, I, just like I explained to you that, to me, it, it sounds almost impossible for 30 people to have been killed in the house from, from 77, 70, say, say middle of 76 to 78, because I was never around that much. I wasn't around. You recall? No, I know. I know that there, there was a lot of stuff going on in the house, but, you know. Because see, Graham, Graham 
even after we get into arguments and stuff, he'd always want to make his make his way back, and he'd always want you know like keys to the house and keys to the vehicle. That was a big thing with all of them guys. They always want to make sure they had keys for vehicles and keys to the house, man. You know. Then Gordon, my uncle, he seems that I was crazy for letting everybody have fucking keys to the house. During 1977, John, can you recall how often uh, you were gone and over what period of time? Well, whenever I would go out of town, I'd be gone anywhere from a week to 14 days. Is it generally business? Yeah, but see, now, don't forget, girls had keys to my house, too. Let me ask you this. When you were out of town, will it be of record? I mean, is there some way... Oh, for sure. ...the yeah. records will know yeah. you were gone? Just take a look at the, the files in 1977, the files in 1978. Inside the files will be the airline tickets, uh, meal tickets, uh, hotel receipts. And you traveled alone? No. Always with one other person. A lot of times with Rossi. Um, Ever with both of them? No. Either one or the, maybe one or the other. <laughs> yeah. Anytime I stayed in the motel, it was either with Rossi or with Graham. When they were with. Like on some jobs, when we went up to Wisconsin, there was four of us. All right, Rossi wanted the room with me. Graham took the room with Michael Ferreira. Did the three of you ever go out together at night? Drinking? Yeah. Did the three of you ever go out together at night that you can recall, John? Yeah. How often? Not too often. Did you go out with them individually? Yeah, I would say more so. More so with Cram than with Rossi. So then conceivably, uh, every time you went out at they night... Were out, they were out a lot together by themselves without me. So you don't recall specifically whether they were with you when you were out and picked somebody else up and brought them home. Conceivably, one of them could, one or the other could have been with you uh, on many of the occasions. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, it's possible. What do you think about it? think it's conceivable? What's yeah, your but feeling about more, it? Guys? More so, but so, there were more times that the two of them went out together. See, now, keep in mind, Rossi and Cram were not only the only two that went out of town with me. PE Systems would sometimes send me out of town either alone or with one of PE's representatives. PE? PE Systems. They're employees. Both Cram and Rossi had keys to your house. Right. And they had access to it when you were gone. Yes. And conceivably, they could have brought somebody back there themselves. That's right. And you found people's property in your house when you returned from home. Yeah, because you there. see here, my neighbor across the street and my neighbor next door would, would tell me that well, there were cars in your driveway while you were gone or this was going on while you were gone. What neighbors? Rexa on the one yeah. side. Of course, Smith, I never talked to too much, but she was always bitching about people coming and going and peeling out of the driveway and shit like that. And the guy across the street. So, you know, the only, the only thing that I, I knew that, you know, with, with drug dealing, Cram, Cram was a big drug dealer. You know, he had all kinds of connections for anything and everything. And I said, well, what happens if they fuck over you? They just take care of them. They have their own way of taking care of people. Fuck over them on drug deals. All of 
all this time, then, they, they knew something was going on, either from you telling them, doing it with them, or them participating. I would say so, yeah. The Menekesi's house are back at it, digging again. As of the 28th, the count stands at 15. The crowds outside are swelling, and at 10.30, the remains of body number 16 are recovered. This victim has a cloth stuffed in the mouth. No plastic bag, no ligature, no clothes. Body 17 was found at 11.05 a.m. Dark pants and socks were found on the body. No ligature, no plastic bag. At 12.20, victim number 18 is unearthed. This particular victim was in a different state than all the others, as the skull was contained in an opaque plastic bag, which was secured at the neck by a ligature. Ten minutes later, body 19 is discovered. Cloth was found in the mouth, no clothes, no ligature, no plastic bag. Five minutes after that, the 20th victim is exhumed. A ligature is found around the neck, the body is clothed in dark pants and a leather belt, no plastic bag. At 2.20 p.m. on the 28th, the last body of the day, victim number 21, is found. No ligature, no clothes, no plastic bag is found with the body. At that point, Dr. Stein directs that all of the remains that have been found are to be transported to the county morgue. Now you may be asking, Bob, why are you including some of the more gruesome details when describing the discovery of the bodies. First of all, it's the way the evidence tech wrote it up, and we feel that you should know all that we know. The other reason is this. We here at Defense Diaries have made it pretty clear that we firmly believe that there were others involved with these murders. And that being said, we want to make a bit of a disclaimer here, and we want to be abundantly clear. These are not facts that we would be presenting to you right now as far as others' potential involvement, but it's a theory and we'll be looking to you, our home sleuths, to dig into this with us in order to help us determine whether or not this particular theory that the conditions in which the bodies were discovered in is in fact a viable way to possibly connect others to the crimes. We know that Gacy only stabbed one of his victims, which was Tim McCoy, his purported first. The rest were presumed to have been strangled by the rope trick. After all, that was Gacy's M.O., so what gives with the bodies that don't have the ligatures around the neck? And why do only some of the victims have the cloth in their mouth? Which we know Gacy did because he admitted that he had placed the cloth in the mouth in order to make it a cleaner kill, so he didn't have to hear the noises, the gagging, the choking, the convulsing for hours after he killed them. Then the plastic bags. Why are some of the bodies contained in plastic bags while others aren't? Why are some of the victims wearing pants and socks and shoes and others are wearing nothing? All of these differences make a very strong case that Gacy was not the only person killing these boys. We know that he was lazy. He preferred the rope trick because it required little or no effort by him. Strangling somebody with your bare hands is an entirely different ball game. It requires strength and stamina, neither of which Gacy was known to have possessed and the actual taking of life with one's own two hands is an entirely different thing than sticking a dowel rod into a knot and twisting it a few times and letting the victim struggle combined with the rope trick handle the rest. Gacy in the tapes has never wavered from his position 
that his victims killed themselves, which is, of course, ridiculous. So we include these details for you, not to increase the shock value of the podcast. No, we include them because they're important and they may help indicate that others may have been involved, not just with the disposing of the bodies, but with the killings as well. Gacy said repeatedly that he just didn't understand how there could be so many victims because he was traveling all the time. Maybe the sick son of a bitch was being truthful. And these are the types of things that we need to examine to determine whether or not Gacy wasn't the only killer disposing of bodies at 8213 Somerdale. Now, we will post this report on Patreon for defense team members to review because if others were involved, justice needs to find them as well. Night falls on the 28th, and bright and early on the 29th, my father gets up, takes his shower, shaves, selects his suit and tie, and double-checks his briefcase to make sure all motions and copies of it are in there to file with the clerk. They were, and he was off to court in displays. The media throngs were there in full force, only they were going to be disappointed on this particular court date, as Gacy was not going to be transported from Sir Mac Memorial Hospital. Typically, a defendant's appearance is required at court, and this is not for the court or state's benefit. It's because the defendant has a constitutional right to be there to confront his accusers. However, the defendant's appearance for a particular court date can be waived, and such was the case on December 29th. And this was because nothing substantive was happening on this date. So my father and Sam Amaranti walk into the packed courtroom and approach the well of the court. My father places his briefcase on counsel's table, opens it, and removes the motions that he's going to be filing. He approaches the clerk and files the following motions. One, a motion to set bond. Two, a motion to dismiss the complaint due to a lack of evidence. Remember, he's only been charged with peace at this point. Three was a motion for a psychiatric exam. And four was a motion to permit a member of the defense team to be present at Gacy's home to observe the search for the remaining victims. Judge John White, who was presiding on this date, informed the parties that Chief Judge Richard Fitzgerald had transferred the matter to 26 and Cal. All motions were entered and continued, meaning that nothing would be heard on this particular day and would be continued over to the next date. The bottom line was that this particular court date was much to do about nothing. But the case was officially transferred to the big boy court at 26 and Cal and the politicking on which judge would end up presiding over the Gacy case was in full swing, as there were several judges chomping at the bit, hoping that the case would land on their bench. Only time will tell. Meanwhile, at the Marywood Cemetery, Kozenzak lords over the team assembled to conduct the search for Rob Peace's body in the enormous mound of dirt. The front loader's bucket plunges into the soft earth and pulls away the first bucket of dirt and drops its load into the beginning of a new pile. Men with shovels sift through the fresh piles as they're dumped. Remember, this pile of dirt was 30 feet high. This is going to take a while, a long while. So the question still remains, have they finally located Rob Peace's body? Find out on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that there's quite a few ads showing up in the podcast, interrupting our super dope flow Sorry about that, but we've got to pay the bills. However, there is a blissful ad-free option for you. 
if you join the defense team at www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries, you can once again enjoy the flowing narrative that Darren and I created and intended for you to hear. Plus, you're supporting the show. Two birds! We haven't done a call to action in a while, so if you love the podcast, remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Defense Diaries, Twitter at Defense underscore Diaries, and on TikTok at Defense Diaries Podcast. So check it out because we post some pretty interesting stuff and we try to keep you updated on what's going on with the pod. And also, don't forget to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And last but not least, to you, our listeners, both our defense team members and otherwise, we love you, we adore you, and without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.